The second reading today is also from Mark 15, <clears throat> beginning at verse 21. It is isn't the most amazing part of the Bible with Jesus' death and what he's done for us. But as I read it yesterday, I felt very sad when you read through what he went through. His disciples abandoning him, the um, crowds and the high priests demanding his death, Pilate denying him um, justice, and on top of that, the humiliation and the pain that he went through. So as I read this, just try and remember what Jesus really went through for you and I. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on the left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it up in three days... Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sababathni, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, 
Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. Well, it's a big weekend, a long weekend, and it's finals weekend. Yeah. Anyone watch the AFL yesterday? A few people. Who's going to watch the NRL tonight? A few more people. Um, after a long and tough season, it's the, the climax, the biggest game of the year. And today, in a sense, we're looking at the, 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 the biggest moment of Jesus' whole ministry. Looking at the crucifixion of Jesus. After a long and tough ministry, it's the climax, the central event of the Bible. If you took away the cross, it's like footy season with no final, no result. The Bible just becomes a story without a climax, a problem with no solution, a lot of words but no good news. And so as a church, we focus a lot on the cross, on Jesus' death and resurrection. Our church logo is a big blue cross with a kind of cool wave thingy around it. Uh, And we've got a couple of crosses on our building. Like that photo? That was midwinter this year. Beautiful. But uh, one of the dangers is that we become so familiar with the cross that we forget it's there. We forget its significance in our lives. And as we come to a passage like this, it's easy to just go, oh, yeah, I know this one. Yeah, the screensaver goes on. We kind of switch off a bit. And we miss the details and rob ourselves of God's truth. Throughout Mark's gospel, one of the recurring themes has been seeing clearly, spiritual sight. Some are blind. Some see partly by God's kindness. Others see clearly. Well, let's ask God that we might be those ones. And see clearly. Let's pray as we start. Dear Father, please open our eyes to the details of your word and our hearts to the truth of your word that we might see Jesus more clearly, love him more deeply, and follow him more courageously. Well, today's passage continues straight on from last week. So, as we read the first verse there, very early in the morning, that tells us that Jesus has been up all night. Have you ever stayed up all night, like literally did not go to bed? I've done it a few times. Uh, Occasionally, uh, working on a sermon. There's no interruptions. You just right through, don't go to bed. Um, I didn't do it this week. Um, I remember doing a uni assignment that way. Uh, Back when I was recording music, I'd start working on an album all night sometimes. So quiet and comfortable and peaceful. But think about Jesus. He's had the Last Supper, Gethsemane, Judas' betrayal, his violent arrest, the disciples fleeing, the sham of a trial in the high priest's residence, mockery, physical abuse, Peter's denial, and he hasn't had a wink of sleep. And now they've bound him like a dangerous animal and handed him over to Pilate. The emotional, mental, physical, spiritual exhaustion must have been overwhelming. And the day has barely started. And notice the religious leaders made their plans. 
They've wanted him dead for a long time. Way back in chapter 3, verse 6, we read, the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. But their plans have backfired so many times, been thwarted. Um, Besides, under the Romans, they didn't have the authority to execute anyone. So now they've gone to Pilate, the Roman governor, who was renowned for his cruelty. They've got to be smart. Uh, They're mad because Jesus claims to be God. That's blasphemy. That's a a religious threat. But if they tried that with Pilate, he'd probably yawn and, you know, we Romans have hundreds of gods. One more can't hurt. My mother-in-law thinks she's a god. When Pilate addresses Jesus in verse 2, we can hear the accusation that they've brought. Are you the king of the Jews, he says to them? The religious leaders have deliberately portrayed Jesus as a political threat to Caesar. Look at the twist. Pilate can't ignore that. Even though verse 10 reveals that he knew they'd handed Jesus over out of self-interest. Ironically, Jesus stands accused of the very thing he refused to do, which is oppose Rome politically. And he's accused of the very thing he is, king of the Jews. Jesus' reply, so clever. You have said so. Rather than just a straight yes or no, Jesus, I think, invites Pilate to think. He gives Pilate room to consider that big question we've all been looking at that Jesus asked. Who do you say I am? Will Pilate own the words that he's just spoken and accept who Jesus is? Or will he reject them? And hand him over to death. Pilate would have seen many on death row begging for their lives. Jesus is battered, bruised and bleeding. But remarkably calm and offers nothing in self-defense. And verse 5, Pilate was amazed. Pilate thought he had a chance to release Jesus with the old mercy custom of uh, releasing a prisoner during Passover. Uh, But verse 11, the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. And we're meant to be shocked at this moment. The Jewish religious leaders have chosen a murderer instead of their Messiah. What extraordinary blindness. blindness. And without realising it, their choice produces one of the most profound gospel illustrations. The innocent one is punished so the guilty one can go free. Doesn't that describe us too? The details of our lives might vary a lot, but from a spiritual perspective, Barabbas' story is our story. We've all sinned against God pushed him out of our hearts. We deserve his just punishment. But but Jesus offered his life as a ransom for many, including us, so that guilty people like you and me could be made right and clean in the sight of a holy God. Jesus is our substitute. And on the cross, he makes atonement for our sin. So that we can receive God's gift of life eternal. By this time, Pilate is buckling under pressure. 
He asked the crowd what they want him to do with Jesus. Really? It's like the, the judge asking the accusers uh, you know, what the verdict should be. It's crazy. Nothing fair about this. Of course, the Jews yelled back, crucify him. And then in a short-lived and quite unexpected twist, Pilate's favour seems to swing Jesus' way. Verse 14, why, what crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Now, a bit of history, Pilate did not like the Jews. They're stubborn, especially when their religious ideas clashed with Rome. But there's one thing Pilate hated more than Jews, and that was rioting Jews because that made him look weak and that could get him in trouble with Rome. He wanted to get control quickly here. Uh, On one occasion, he rounded up over 200 Jews for rioting, herded them into the arena to be beaten. Some of them died. He could be very heavy-handed, but on this occasion, to regain the peace, He gave in to their will. Verse 15, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. And Mark adds so many little details and dialogue to help us see all that's going on through this section, if we have eyes to see. We know from last week that Jesus had already experienced plenty of mocking and torture Uh, throughout the night now it continues in verses 15 to 20 the romans they really knew how to damage someone i read about the physical suffering jesus endured and honestly i don't want to go through it again in all the gory detail look it up if you want to read about it if you want to except to say that under the most horrific suffering Jesus resolutely faced the cross for you and I. Notice what's going on the torture though. Mockery of a king. Look at all the details. The palace, the purple robe, the crown of thorns, the staff, same word as scepter, calling out, hail, king of the Jews, as they fell to their knees in mock worship. The Romans mocking worship mirrors the religious leaders back in the high priest courtyard. Do you see what's going on here? Jesus is the true king who should be worshipped by both Jews and Gentiles. But instead he was rejected by both Jews and Gentiles. To fulfill the Father's plan to save both Jews and Gentiles. The culmination of his suffering was the cross itself. The readers of that day needed no extra explanation. They knew exactly what crucifixion looked like. The Romans had three main ways of killing people. Beheading, burning and crucifixion. A nasty lot, weren't they? And the cross was reserved for the worst offenders because it involved the most pain. After trial, the accused carried the cross beam on their shoulders to the posts outside the city where they would be nailed down and then strung up. Now, this is a horrible thought. It only occurred to me a couple of days ago. But every time Jesus walked in and out of Jerusalem, he would have seen those posts. Knowing that one day when the hour came, he would hang there himself. 
drinking the cup of God's wrath against sin. And yet Jesus faced that suffering willingly for, for me and for you in obedience to the Father's will. Incredibly painful, incredibly purposeful. On the way to Golgotha, Golgotha, tripping over my words, Jesus tripped over under the weight of the cross, depleted in strength. Simon of Cyrene was forced to carry the cross. The fact that Mark uses his name probably means he was known to early believers. It's highly likely that Simon was a proselyte. It's a convert to Judaism because he's coming to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. He lives about 800 kilometers away. He's coming there for the Passover festival to worship God. And I wonder if this precious yet painful moment led to his conversion to following Christ as he literally took up his cross and followed Jesus. And Mark's language here matches the words of Jesus back in chapter 8. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Simon of Cyrene was forced. We, on the other hand, are called to choose. But we cannot have a shallow, sentimental idea of what it means to follow Jesus. There's no half measure, not for Jesus, not for those who trust him and follow him. In verse 23, Jesus is offered wine mixed with myrrh, a mild anaesthetic, but he would not accept anything to dull the pain. To fulfill Psalm 22, the soldiers divide his clothes and cast lots to see what each will get. There's so much in Psalm 22 that is fulfilled here in this moment. With his clothing and undergarment gone, Jesus hangs naked and exposed. A reversal of God's provision in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve uh, were provided covering for the shame caused by their sin. As Jesus takes our sin upon himself, he takes our shame with us. The next verse tells us it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. Today we call it peak hour. Maximum number of people. The streets are at their busiest. If Google gave us that little bar graph, it would be the tallest bar right now. Broad daylight, no hiding whatsoever. And the written charge said, the king of the Jews. That was Pilate's wording. Perhaps his way of antagonising the religious leaders. Perhaps he was beginning to believe it. We don't know. But what we do know is that the charge is true. Jesus is the king of the Jews. Jesus is the king of all creation and worthy of all worship. But the religious leaders were utterly blind. Next, Mark points out the rebels crucified with him. One on his right And one on his left. Remember where we last heard those words? James and John? James and John. They wanted those places on Jesus' right and left when he was crowned as king. See what's going on here? Jesus told them they didn't understand what they were asking for. Now we can see why. But it had to be this way. 
to fulfill what Isaiah had prophesied. He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. In the next few verses, a lot of shouting and mocking that climaxes in the words, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. They've got it so right and so wrong all at the same time. He saved others. Yes, he did. Absolutely. But it is by staying on the cross that he saves others. If they see him come down from the cross, no one will be saved. There is no gospel to hold on to and there is nothing left to believe in. They failed to see that it wasn't the Roman nails that held him on the cross. It was love. Obedient love for his Father in heaven and sacrificial love for sinful people like me and like you. Then at the brightest and hottest part of the day, verse 33, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. In Exodus chapter 10, three days of darkness preceded the last plague, which was the death of the firstborn. Darkness spoke of God's judgment against unrepentant Egypt. Now darkness speaks God's word of judgment against unrepentant Israel. Amos prophesied this moment saying, In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I'll make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. A little later he even says, I'll make that time like morning for an only sun. The depth of the darkness of the cross for Jesus brought the dawning of light of the gospel for us. At the end of that deathly darkness, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani. It's Aramaic. Most of the original readers didn't understand either, so Mark interprets it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some who were there obviously didn't understand it either. They thought, he's calling Elijah. It's almost comical. Actually, Elijah, along with Moses, have already come to Jesus. Remember at the top of the mountain, the transfiguration? At that time, God said, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. So what exactly is Jesus saying in these words? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, a little game will help us here. What's the next line? Once a jolly swagman. So easy, isn't it? So try a harder one. There was movement at the station. (laughs) Good. And, you know, I reckon some of you could recite the entire song or poem, couldn't you? You just know it so well. Back in Jesus' day, only about 10% of the population could read or write. How they learned things is by listening and memorising. So many of the onlookers would have recognised these words on the screen as the opening words of Psalm 22. It's all about the Messiah and describes in great detail his suffering and rejection and mocking and death, even the resurrection as well. I encourage you to go home, read Psalm 22. It's amazing. We've already seen this passage a little earlier today. By crying these words, Jesus is saying, Psalm 22, it's all pointing to this moment. It's all about me. See how Mark is weaving all these threads in a detailed tapestry that reveals Jesus' true identity. He is the Messiah. 
He is the king of the Jews and of the Gentiles. He is the sinner's friend and the sinner's saviour. He is the fulfilment of Old Testament prophecy. All God's promises find their fulfilment in Jesus. The cross of Christ truly is the great climax of history. Mark now wraps up quickly, and I will too. Verse 37, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. We know the words of that cry from John's gospel. It is finished. Hardly the cry of a defeated criminal, is it? It's more like the the victory shout of an army commander or or a centurion, perhaps. I don't think it's all that surprising that when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man is the Son of God. He would have presided over many deaths. But he'd never seen anyone die like this. I jumped over verse 38. Seems rather random, odd. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. The the whole drama is at this side of the cross. Then one verse. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What's that got to do with anything? Well, it's no mistake. In fact, Mark is highlighting for us Exactly what the death of Jesus has accomplished. For centuries, this massive, heavy curtain had hung in the temple, separating worshippers from the Holy of Holies, uh, where God's presence dwelt. Even the high priests only went in there once a year. So the tearing of the curtain at the moment of Jesus' death signified the removal of the barrier between God and sinful humanity. The forgiveness of sins. The fulfillment of the old covenant through Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. So friends, through faith in Christ, we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence and enjoy a new and living relationship with the God who's given us life. We've covered a lot of details today. Let me ask you, how's your spiritual sight? Jesus continues to challenge us with the question, who do you say I am? We've looked at all sorts of details about the cross, but the dangers we'll leave here, kind of nodding our heads, but forgetting what we've heard. So let me ask you, what has helped you? Even just one thing, what has helped you flesh out your answer personally to that question in all that we've explored today. Who do you say I am? Amen.